0: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Well, hello. Hello. Now, I have news to report. Hmm. I feel like this podcast, which is we shortly be have been going five years, by
3: the way. Yes, what anniversary is that? Wood, paper, polystyrene—I never know which one is which. Polystyrene doesn't sound very good. It can't be polystyrene. I think there is. Yeah, it might be polythene. Um, let's have a look. Five years is wood. Mm. mm. Um. Anyway,
2: that's sort of actually I got sort of diverted. So I feel like this five years. There's clearly been a sort of arc of our friendship, our deepening bonds. I thought you were about to suggest we went into counselling. And there's also been an arc of my fitness. Yes. And general exercise obsessions. Yes. We've moved along the arc because I have now become what I think I can only describe as a regular cyclist to work. Wow. Yeah, there's a, quite a challenge because I've started going in shorts,
3: not lycra shorts. but What a some. shame for the commuters of London.
2: Exactly, exactly. But then it's like, how do I make sure that my shirt isn't all crumpled
3: up? Don't you just do what David Cameron did and have somebody follow behind you in yeah. a car?
2: No, I didn't. suit that, uh, that option isn't available. Uh, but then the other thing is that yesterday, my bike chain came off twice I managed to get it back on twice, but the second time it was a slightly Ed Miliband situation where the bike sort of fell on top of me as I tried to turn <laughs> it over. And there were people passing by looking at me thinking, oh, I think we know him. For some reason, you popped into my head. I basically thought, well, Jeff would be laughing uproariously at this and sort of thinking... I, would,
3: well, I wouldn't then. be offering to help. But I got the chain back on actually twice. Wow, this is impressive. Can I ask you, what do you think about the sort of headphone thing? Do you think I'm allowed to have headphones on? I think it just really depends on if you want to harm yourself or somebody else.
2: In case you can't hear a beeping car or something.
3: I sometimes see a young man around my neighbourhood who cycles around with a music blaring out of a Bluetooth speaker. Maybe you could get one of those to listen to your podcasts.
2: Well, I was listening to Sam Fender while on, on my iPhone, and then I thought, well, that is that noise pollution on other people? I mean, it wasn't very loud, being me. But I, I, mean, I suppose one other thing to say is, let's see where I am in November. Do you know what I mean?
3: In the drizzle. (laughs) Maybe I could get you some cycling galoshes for Christmas. What is a cycling galosh? I don't know if it exists. That could be our ticket out of this hellhole. If it doesn't exist, we could start manufacturing them. Galoshes. I like the word galoshes. Anyway, so that's my big news. Hey, speaking of Wellingtons. Yes. You're you're going to Glastonbury, aren't you?
2: Yes.
3: What's your agenda? Are you in and out? Are you going to watch some stuff? What's the plan? I think we'll watch some popular beat combos. Are you camping? No, I think we're staying nearby. Nice, I think that's
2: the the, the way to do it. Aren't we missing out a bit on the experience by not camping? You're missing the bad bit of
3: the experience, I think. Is it genuinely the bad bit, though? Well, it depends. Under the stars, da 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 Do you like sleeping in a comfortable environment? Yes. Do you like a lot of unpleasant noise and smells while you're trying to sleep? No. Do you like waking up drenched in sweat? No. Do you like not being able to find the place that you're supposed to be sleeping and that turning into a whole palaver? No. I think you're doing it the right way then. Okay, fine. Have you camped at Glastonbury before? They have it on the TV, you know. Do they really? Yeah, it's great. The view's better. The food is better. My sofa is better.
2: Anyway, it's going to be fun. I'll report back to you. Yeah,
3: I'm really intrigued.
2: Yeah, I'm very keen to see Sam Fender. if I mentioned that? <laughs> I'm hoping I might meet Sam Fender. You
3: know, often at these festivals, yeah. uh, there's some cross-pollination and people invite special guests who are also performing at the festival to perform with them. Is there a Sam Fender song that you think you could do a decent duet? 17 going under. Nice. Or in my case, 70 going under. Can you remind us how that one goes? I can't, no. Oh, damn. I'm <laughs> not going to take that bait. Because
2: honestly, I wouldn't want to get in trouble on the copyright issue.
3: Th- that's the only reason. As we've said many times, I think it'd be so unrecognisable. I don't think it would be a problem. Well, I'll report back from Glasto, as I think they call it. And it's not going to be a hedonistic experience for you. You're not going to be necking ganja pills or lighting up a big molly, are you? What do you think? I I think not. (laughs) I think think you might be right. I think you are. (laughs) Well, um, enjoy it. Yeah. We look forward to uh, seeing you on the other side and seeing how you've been transformed by the experience. Next stop, Burning Man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, should we talk about what we're talking about this week? We should. This week we're talking about women in prison. Now, we first looked at prison reform way back when, in episode 19, but we didn't touch on the specific treatment of women in prison to any great degree. And it's a topic that really deserves a specific look. Women make up only 4% of the prison population, and most women are sent to prison for less than six months, which is enough time to lose your job, your home, or your children. And with us today, we have Kate Paradine, who is Chief Executive of Women in Prison. We have Paula Harriet, Head of Prisoner Engagement at the Prison Reform Trust, and Mel Evans from No Births Behind Bars, who you might have seen stage quite the stunt recently. We'll talk about that with Mel. What's your
2: reason to be cheerful?
3: My reason to be cheerful is showstoppers. They do a kids' show. It's a musical, improvised, based on the suggestions of children. Wow, that sounds great. It's brilliant. The cast come out and they get kids to say what they think the story should be about. That sounds great. So someone saying snow or a prince in a castle or a forest. And Eugene's suggestion got picked and the whole story was spun out of his suggestion.
2: And it was about a dynamic climate change secretary
3: who took on global warming and won. I mean, that is the kind of weird thing that he would say. But on this occasion, it was perhaps even stranger than that. He said, ABBA performing at the Battle of Waterloo. Oh, my God
2: goodness me
3: that's amazing it's almost like you're watching magic kids were just shouting stuff out so they'd stop at different points in the story and they'd say okay who enters now and then a kid would say iron man that's really good but it was all in song it wasn't just improv where they kind of act it out My God. everything was song and the telepathy between the performers as they make these songs up on the spot and i've heard people say yeah but you know don't they uh, don't they have a load of stuff in the back pocket they can just they can just pull out yeah that's what i was about to say well i'm i'm telling you that there is no way that they uh, they're regularly getting kids in there saying can you do a story about abba performing at the battle of waterloo i mean that is fantastic and how do we find out about it if you google showstoppers kids i know they're doing another show in london at the uh, end of this month but i can't recommend it highly enough and there is um, you know there is the uh, the regular grown-up version which i'm quite intrigued by now what's your reason to be cheerful
2: we're talking about arcs another arc is around my culinary skills
3: Yes, which
2: you uh,
3: encourage. No, I think you sort of are pretty disdainful about. that no. Honest. I, th- I th- here's the thing. I think it's a slightly abusive dynamic in that I, I encourage it and then Take I the out r- ridicule you. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's a sort of
2: downside thing, which I suppose, just in the interest of balance, I should sort of. M- I made some baba ganoush for a
3: dinner party we were having. Oh, thanks for the invite. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, and it was, but you didn't. It, you're, not, you're not choosing not to address it. No. Uh, who, who was who were the guests? No, no, it's a secret. Uh and uh the babaganoush was a sort of
2: inspired thing to do. It was a sort of extra thing to do and it was sort of fine. Hmm. But it was sort of only fine. But anyway, that that wasn't really the point. Uh the point is this, which is I was doing the Progressive
3: Economy Forum conference last weekend. I'm I'm not going to make a fuss about not getting an invitation to that. Uh the
2: highlight of the conference for me was that a young guy, I think his name was Alex, came up to me before the I did my spiel about progressive economy and said, when are you going to reveal your aubergine recipe that you talked about on the podcast? Now, Jeff, you and I know that in my political career, I've had a somewhat checkered relationship with food, <laughs> uh, but this is the first time anyone has asked me for a
3: recipe. You didn't show him a photograph of it, did you? I didn't know. Probably, probably as well. But I,
2: I can tell Alex if it was Alex. Uh, it's from the Green Roasting Tin by Rukmini Ayer. I hope I pronounced that right. It's called the subtitle of the book is Vegan and Vegetarian One Dish Dinners, and the dish is aubergine with tomatoes,
3: harissa, and almonds.
2: Uh, on page sixty
3: four, watch sales of that book skyrocket now. This is this is like going on Oprah. The Reasons to be Cheerful effect.
1: Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Well, to start the conversation, we have with us Kate Paradine, who is the outgoing chief executive of Women in Prison. You're leaving after nearly seven years. And I wondered if we could start just by talking about your time with the organisation. How did you end up there in the first place?
4: It was partly because I'd had a relative that had been in prison that led me to, to leading women in prison. And like many jobs like this, it was a little bit of a, an accident. I accepted the role, but was quite scared on being offered the role. And w- when I started, it was a real challenge, and it has been ever since.
3: You said there you had kind of a personal connection to prisons initially, but more, more broadly going into the job, what did you think? The issues would be and how accurate was that?
4: Well I think I was probably a bit naive about how quickly things could change in this area. It's an area where there is so much agreement that things can be done so differently and make an enormous difference and yet change seems to be taking so very long and I think that's the main bit that I think I've come to terms with. I think as well leading a charity has been a lot more complicated than I ever thought it would be and also campaigning and how resilient you have to be to keep going.
3: Quite early on in our podcast we we did an episode on prison reform but can you give us an overview of the issues that are specific to women in prison and some of the ideas that are evidence-based that you feel could be implemented?
4: Well, when you look at women in prison, they're 5% of the overall prison population and probably the most disadvantaged and vulnerable group in an already extraordinarily disadvantaged and vulnerable group. So the root causes of women's offending are often poverty, mental ill health, substance misuse and issues around abuse and trauma. So many women in prison have experienced some form of abuse, domestic abuse, sexual exploitation or abuse as children. A third grew up in care. So this is a group which is extremely vulnerable. And we know that prison makes existing problems and root causes of offending so much worse. And even a few weeks in prison is enough to lose your job, your home, your children, and also to make debt worse if poverty is one of the reasons that you've reached into the criminal justice system.
3: Given that prisons are what we have, what are the solutions or ways to improve this once people are inside the prison system?
4: Well, inside prison, it's hard to address anything. Everything is harder because if you think what prisons are there for, they're there to contain people. Security is the major focus and they are intended to punish. So accessing mental health support, support for physical conditions, substance misuse support support with domestic abuse, poverty, all those complicated things that get women into prison are harder to, to address in prison. But the problem is that we're addicted in the country to prison and to prison as punishment. And it's that addiction that needs to be broken. At the moment, billions are being spent on new prison places to expand the prison population, including 500 new prison cells for women at a time when the government has already agreed in a strategy that it published in 2018, that far too many women are in prison that don't need to be there and have committed publicly to a a pretty decent strategy To reduce the prison population. And that strategy is to invest in community based support services like women's centres. We run women's centres in Manchester and London, and we have a number of partners across the country that do similar work. And what we do is we support women alongside the likes of probation officers and other professionals. And we provide advocacy for them to address those multiple problems that got them into prison in the first place. So there is an answer. The government agrees there's an answer. The problem is that it's going in the wrong direction in completing and implementing its own strategy.
2: Kate, can you paint a picture just for our listeners of some of the women who are in prison and what offences they may have committed and why, in your view, prison isn't the right place for them to be?
4: Well, what we've got to remember is that 72% of women sentenced to prison have committed non-violent, usually very minor offences, often theft, like shoplifting. So it is a complete myth that the only reason you go to prison is because you've done something very serious, but it's an enduring myth. There's only a a small number of crimes where women are disproportionately impacted, and a third of all prosecutions of women, all prosecutions, are for not paying their TV licence which is directly linked to poverty. Another issue linked to poverty and other disadvantage is people being criminalised for not getting their children to school. And a research project a couple of years ago found that 71% of the parents that were criminalised for that were women because they're more likely to be primary carers. And of the 10 people that were sadly sent to prison for not getting their children to school, nine of those people were women. And I don't think you need much imagination to work out what a ridiculous situation that is and what a horrific situation that family will have found themselves in as a result. And one thing for sure, it would not have helped get that child to school. Also, nearly 20% of women are there on romance. They've not been convicted or sentenced and many of those will not be convicted or will not receive a prison sentence in the end anyway. So the vast majority of women don't need to be there because their issues and also any issues the criminal justice system has in terms of community sentences can be dealt with within the community. When they leave prison, 50% are not going into settled accommodation. So they're being they're been let out and sent into the world, really set up to fail. And this is an enduring problem. And very recently, about last month, The prison's inspectorate reported on one prison and found 86 women had been in that prison because they were acutely mentally unwell and there weren't acute mental health facilities for them to go to. So the picture is really grim. And within prisons for the last two years, for the vast majority of that time, people in prison have effectively been held in solitary confinement in their cells for around 23, 22 hours a day. And obviously that has changed at points But everything has been affected, including contact with children.
2: And it is worth saying, isn't it, that nearly three in five of women in prison are mothers?
4: Yes. So there's different research on that. But roughly that is what the statistics suggest yet. So we know that in 95% of cases, when a mother goes to prison, her children will either leave their own home to go into care or to live with relatives So the impact on families for women in prison is extraordinary. Women are much more likely to be primary carers. And we know that in a prison, women are often trying to help manage their families, whether it be teenage children, elderly parents.
3: Surely it's difficult for people to argue that uh, any punishment should then have an effect that lasts into the lifetime of, of a child of someone in prison.
4: There is an enormous ripple effect of imprisonment for anyone that's imprisoned, but particularly for women. And the intergenerational effects are considerable in terms of the harm that that does to children. But also in terms of the stigma, so the actual stigma of going to prison, regardless of why you were there in the first place, is enormous. And I think the frustration is that for a very long time since Baroness Jean Causton reported in 2007, there has been a cross-party commitment that this issue can be addressed and successive ministers still continue to entrench the problem of imprisonment being so overused with women, including these plans that were announced last year to spend £200 million on 500 new prison cells for women, when the Public Accounts Committee recently announced that only £9.5 million had been spent over the last four years on women's services, like women's centres. So those are the sort of comparisons just in terms of the money that we're talking about.
2: You raised the Corston report, which was the seminal 2007 report by now Baroness Jean Corston. what was it that the Corston report recommended that hasn't been done?
4: Well, effectively, what Baroness Corston said was that actually the vast majority of women in prison don't need to be there, and that if we invest over a sustained period of time in women's centres and related specialist services, so there's services like Working Chance, um, Clean Break, Hibiscus birth companions who provide specialist services to women. And if we invested in all of those and in local community-based women's centres, where the problems that brought people to prison in the first place could be addressed, then we would significantly reduce the population and be able to close women's prisons and hold those that are left a tiny number in conditions where they were better able to address the problems that brought them there.
3: You, know, you must meet people who, when you tell them what you do for a living, they become very angry at the idea that people in prison should get special attention, that, that women in prison should be treated any differently. If, if you meet somebody like that, how do you go about changing the way they think?
4: I have to say, Jeff, that in my experience of my seven years doing this role, the opposite is the case. I find that when we talk to people that don't know about this area and explain to them why women in prison are there and the root causes and what we do in terms of providing a bridge to services and providing routes for women to connect to the community, that people genuinely understand why this makes absolute sense. And there is a lot of support in communities for these kind of services because they're not just about women in prison. They're about women facing multiple disadvantages. So, for us, I think it isn't the case that the public are punitive when they understand. And I've seen a change in the press in terms of the coverage of this issue. There is real interest now in solutions.
3: If someone is listening to this and they're thinking, oh, it's outrageous, I want to do something, what can they do? How can they support you?
4: Well, they can go to our website and write to their MP and ask what their MP's stance is on £200 million being spent on 500 new prison cells and also what they're doing to support their local community women's centres and support services for women leaving prison and, and women caught up in the criminal justice system.
2: Kate, you've mentioned that you're leaving the post after six years. Do you see positive policy change on the horizon?
4: Well, I think the fact that the government has a strategy which sets out why we need to radically reduce the women's prison population and what we should do instead which is to invest in community-based support services and women's centres. That's brilliant. What I've seen over the last, well, particularly the last four years, is that there is an overwhelmingly strong coalition of support. So police crime and commissioners, police officers, probation staff, prison governors, in fact, All of them support this direction of travel and feel passionately. And so the building of trust and relationships is where I see there being hope because people are looking at communities and they're saying, is this how I want my community to be? And women's centres are often a real source of pride in communities. And the other reason I have hope is that I think the only way forward now with criminal justice policy is a cross-party truce And I think we have to stretch our imaginations a little bit at the moment. If they all agreed that this would never be a political football, then we could save billions, transform communities and actually drive crime down really quickly until it's led from the top of the main political parties. Then I think we will be struggling. But I've still got hope it could happen. This corner, this tiny corner of the criminal justice system could be transformed And we really could be proud of that corner. And then that could lead us to perhaps have more hope about what could happen for the rest of the system. So I think that there are really hopeful signs.
3: Thank you so much for laying out the issue so clearly for us there, Kate. And good luck. But for now, Kate Paradine from Women in Prison. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks very much. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: We're joined now by Paula Harriet, who is head of prisoner engagement at the Prison Reform Trust and host of the Secret Life of Prisons podcast. And Paula and I, First met actually in 2008. Paula, great to see you again.
5: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ed, for bringing me on the show.
2: Yeah, well, great to have you. To start with, perhaps you could tell us a bit about your background and how this became an important issue to you.
5: This is an important issue for me prison reform because I actually am a person who's served a prison sentence. I got an eight year prison sentence and was away for four years in prison and four years on license. And I think when you've had direct first-hand experience of what it's like to be on the wrong side of the law, what it's like to be sent to prison, what it's like to try to rebuild your life after a prison sentence, I think when you've actually touched that personally, I think that shapes you in a way that, you know, for me, I felt like I need to say something, I need to do something, I need to educate people about, what I've witnessed, what I've seen, where the real responsibilities lie for fixing this, and just be part of that conversation. So that's that's why I care.
3: And, and when you think of members of the public and the way that they think about the PRISM system, what, what, what do they commonly get wrong about it? What's the biggest misconception that you hear?
1: I think
5: they think PRISM works. I think the public, everybody is upset about crime. I'm upset about crime we want resolution, don't we, to crime. And we think that punishment and prison solves that for us. But it doesn't necessarily affix the inherent problems why people carried out those acts in the first place. Nor does it prevent other people from doing that in the future? So if if you give you a for instance, I sold drugs. I was a drug user. When I was sent to prison, not one of the customers, if you want to put it that way, who bought drugs from me stopped using drugs as a consequence of me going to prison they just moved to the next dealer down the road and we haven't resolved the inherent problem around the criminalization of drugs or why people use drugs in the first place so actually yes, I stopped doing it for four years. I could have come out and done it again if I hadn't had sort of support around understanding why I was doing that and how harmful it was not just to me, my children, but to my wider community. But for us to acknowledge prison doesn't work means we've got to do deeper thinking than just separating out people as good and evil and sending the evil people away.
2: Could you talk to us, Paula, about your journey from being in prison to the job you now do as head of prisoner engagement at the Prison Reform Trust? Because I think our listeners would find it interesting as to how you navigated that path.
5: How do you get from a prison cell to being on Ed Miliband's podcast? <laughs>
2: exactly. Well, I'm not. Sh- I'm not <laughs> sure that being on our podcast is the pinnacle. But anyway,
5: uh... oh, I think that it's validating, isn't it? How do you get there? Going to prison was a devastating blow. I'm a mom of five kids. It was immensely painful. The deepest pain was the deep acknowledgement of what was happening to my kids while I was away and the guilt and the responsibility I felt towards them. And I think that that sort of shifted the dial inside to me. I started to think about how can I contribute to this community here? What skills have I got that's useful in jail? You can find a space to be a sort of a contributing member of your own prison community. That was the part of, of like a, a new identity for me. I came out on release on temporary license. It's when People are moving to open conditions and they get risk assessed and then they go out to be working in their community. So I came out as a volunteer to work at something called the Scarman Trust. I enjoyed it. I really felt proud of myself that I'd moved from being this like devastated individual, the pariah of the community, outed to somebody who was able to be useful in their community. At that point, the sun followed me one day and put me in the newspaper at the very end of my sentence and shamed me publicly. I'll never forget the headline. It said, Drug Lag Let Out to Work in Drugs Rife Handsworth. And and that was my first encounter with the discriminatory, sensationalist nastiness of papers towards people in prison. I went to work for another organization, that had partnered with Scarman Trust in a project to an organisation called Changemakers that was working around youth leadership. I became the regional manager and I wasn't very confident about saying that I was an ex-prisoner because of that fear of the sun and being outed and being disgraced and being viewed as less than. Again, I lead prisoner engagement activities in policy work and citizenship work from the Prison Reform Trust. That means running the network, going into prisons, recruiting people to the network, running sessions with people, creating reports so that prisoners' voice is heard in the evidence base. Because if you think about prison policy being based on following the evidence, if the voice of prisoners and the experiences of prisoners and suggestions of prisoners for change are not in the evidence base, then they're noistless, aren't they are voiceless are not they that's what my work's about. My work is about how do we create a space for a more sophisticated conversation that includes people with lived experience of the issues.
2: One thing that strikes me is we haven't really talked about the support or lack of support that you had while in prison. And it doesn't sound like your journey was related to particular support you had in prison, was it?
5: I'm not saying that there weren't parts of the prison experience that were helpful. Because they were sometimes like take, getting yourself out of chaotic situations and having some moment of peace. Yeah, that is helpful. What other things that like access to prison were helpful were, you know, like drug treatment? Definitely helpful, right? But there were also like layers of pain on top of that as well. It wasn't like a therapeutic space. The reoffending rates show you that it's a failing system, right? So like if, if why do we keep investing in a system that clearly doesn't work is beyond my comprehension. That that's if it was a if it was a a business, it would be bankrupt. All the shareholders would sell the shares. <laughs> you know, like I will never forget my prison number, MM four eight six five Harrier. You know, you're not Paula anymore. You're not humanized in that situation. What does dehumanization of individuals signal? It signals that they're not worth it. And so then, the support is piecemeal.
2: And what's the most significant lesson that you would have heard that you would want to pass on to our listeners?
5: People need activities, they need therapeutic support, they need skills building, they need employment opportunities, and they need hope and vision for the future as well. And our job in the wider community is to create the conditions for that to happen by putting the resources into prison, but also for the community to be ready to accept people back and employers to be ready to employ people with convictions, you know, for people to have a wider view about the causes and the solutions. Before I went to prison, there were nine services satelliting my life. Maybe if I'd been diverted to a women's centre earlier, maybe that would have worked. Maybe we would have avoided prison if I'd gone to a women's centre and worked with. Specialist services around all the issues that were satelliting my life around drugs and domestic violence and mental health. Maybe if I'd had some sensitive gender based support, we could have avoided imprisonment altogether. I got invited to speak about the impact of imprisonment upon children. I asked my daughter, who's now 27, to come with me. She spoke about what the impact of me going to prison had been on her as a child. And she said, and it actually broke my heart, she said, when my mum went to prison, it was if she died. To all intents and purposes, she died. And if you know that a child's mother is, has died, you would rally around with empathy. You would The school would check in on you. Your family members would check on you. People would be super sensitive about uh, birthdays, Christmas. She goes, but when our mum essentially died for four years, We couldn't speak about it. Nobody spoke about it to us. When I heard that, I thought, oh, that's like such a lesson, isn't it? About how we don't talk about this and the impact of not talking about it, the harm that it causes to the innocent victims of any person who's in prison, mother or father. You know, their children are suffering greatly.
3: So we have a coming utopia on this podcast, the Jeffocracy, where we, we put the people with the ideas in charge of fixing things. If we put you in charge of prison reform, what is the first thing, Paula, that you would do on day one? You've got your stationery, you've got your desk, <laughs> you've got your Rolodex. More importantly, you've got your hands on the levers of power. What, what is the first thing you would do?
5: You'd be pleading for more resources to be plunged into prison. That's first and foremost, to fix like, the dilapidated environment, to up the skill base of people that are working in prison. But more broadly, I think I'd be leading a conceptual conversation about purpose. What do we want from our prison system? What is the actual thing we want? I'd be making sure that people who've experienced the justice system firsthand and family members of people who've experienced the system firsthand are truly and equitably part of that conversation.
3: It's a conversation people can learn more about on the podcast, The Secret Life of Prisons. Paula Harriet, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. So to round off this conversation with us now is Mel Evans, co-founder of No Births Behind Bars. Hello, Mel. Hi there. We're excited to talk to you. Partly because of a a brilliant protest you staged recently, a feed-in. Now, for anyone who didn't see this, can you just tell us what it was and and why you organised it?
1: Certainly. So about 50 mums gathered outside the Ministry of Justice just last week, and we sat down outside the front doors to feed our babies, some of us breastfeeding, bottle feeding, spoon feeding, all to show our solidarity with pregnant women in prison and new mothers in prison and to call on this government to stop the barbaric practice of sending pregnant women and new mothers to prison. The whole idea that it could be socially acceptable to send a pregnant woman or a new mother to be in jail with her baby in her womb or um, her baby in her arms is just horrific it's it's such a big deal (laughs) to be pregnant and to have a and have a baby it's such an important precious time and we just feel so strongly that these women shouldn't be put through that these babies shouldn't enter the world in those conditions we know that many of the countries around the world have a law prohibiting the sending of pregnant women and, and new mothers to prison and that's what we think should happen in the UK as well
3: And just tell us about how it went from your perspective, because the photos just look brilliant. What was the response like?
1: Yeah, it has been a fantastic atmosphere at these protests. That's the second one we've done, actually. We had 50 babies, the world's biggest baby protest as far as we know in Parliament Square just um, just after Mother's Day. And just now we had a, about the same number outside the, the Ministry of Justice. And yeah, the atmosphere is always really warm and convivial. The public on the street was stopping by our baby feeding outside the Justice Ministry and talking to us about what was going on and obviously taking pictures and enjoying the scene of all these cute babies assembled. And we did go inside the building to deliver a petition signed by 10,000 people calling on an end to, the, to um, court, sending pregnant women and new mothers to prison. We asked Dominic Ragg, the Justice Minister, to come out and speak to us, but unfortunately no one from his office was, was willing to do so. So maybe we'll have to go back sometime.
3: What a missed photo opportunity that would have been for him.
1: Absolutely.
2: Tell us, Mel, how this issue became important to you and how you went about setting up No Births Behind Bars.
1: I think when you have a baby yourself, it's an experience which really connects you with everyone else who's done the same thing. And suddenly you're you're on the bus and you see other new parents and you kind of give each other that look of like, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> we know about the sleepless nights. We know about the worries that you have about, you know, how your, your child's welfare... And so when I heard that two babies had died in UK prisons in the past three years, that women had been left to labor alone in their cells when they'd called for medical help, I was devastated. I I cannot believe that this is happening in our country, in our modern society. It sounds like some kind of Dickensian nightmare, and yet... That's what happened in Style Prison two years ago. And No Birth Behind Bars is going to go to Style Prison to mark the second anniversary of the death of a, a baby called Brooke. The mum, Louise Powell, supports the protest and is pursuing all, all avenues to challenge what happened to her and, and the conditions in which she was held. So for me, this this just seems like an absolute outrage and unconscionable in in our society that we continue to allow pregnant women and new mothers to be imprisoned it seems so simple and straightforward to say okay this is too far we have to stop sending women and new mothers to prison and when you look at it like that it does bring into question well what's what's prison doing for anyone and what are the alternatives to prison It's about having proper systems of welfare for people and preventing crime before it takes place. So I think they're the things that really move me on this issue and really make me want to try and help show some solidarity for women who are in this situation.
3: The horrific examples that you mention are the ones that become media stories. But when you talk to women who have had lived experience of Either pregnancy in prison or having to give birth whilst in custody. What what kind of things do you hear? Can you maybe tell our listeners what what life is like for those women?
1: Women who are pregnant in prison aren't able to have routine antenatal appointments, as you would expect um, on the outside world. They're not able to get medical help when they call for it. Think of what it's like when you're pregnant. You're heavy all your joints are aching and these women are sleeping on hard, thin mattresses. They're not able to go outside and move around. If you vomit, you can't get access to extra food and the food that you do have access to isn't healthy and nutritious. Then imagine being a baby (laughs) and your first experience of the world being inside a jail cell alone when a baby should be greeted by all its extended family and community. It should be in the home, (laughs) um, learning about the world with all of its family. And and yet here we are isolating these women inside a prison for these intensely important and precious first months of a baby's life. Of the women who are in prison, about half of the women are there on remand and they don't even receive custodial sentences. So one woman we're in touch with she was released from prison the day after she gave birth. One in 10 women who are in prison pregnant don't make it to hospital. They're, they're stuck in jail when they give birth to their babies. Even of those that make it to hospital, they're handcuffed to a prison guard, potentially for the majority of the labor. This woman who gave birth, you know, in handcuffs up until the end, she was then released in the following days. She never even received a custodial sentence. So, the fact that there isn't a way of preventing that from happening just seems hub- abhorrent.
2: And what is the solution then?
1: The solution lies in women being pregnant, giving birth, and starting new motherhood at home with their babies. And that means resourcing women centres across the country. For all women in prison, there's a case to say, actually, resource women's centres, focus on rehabilitation, drug rehabilitation, support, tackling homelessness. And that's the way that you actually address the root causes of crime. And in the case of pregnant women, there's just no way that pregnancy, childbirth or new motherhood can be safe in jail. There's no way jail can be made safe for that to happen. And we must get these pregnant women out of prison now.
2: Well, look, Mel, you've set out very clearly the campaign. How can people get involved uh, and support your No Births Behind Bars campaign?
1: We'd love for more new parents to come and join us in calling on the government to stop sending pregnant women and new mothers to prison. People could sign the petition that Level Up have on their website calling for exactly this. And they could also come out in London on the 7th of July at midday to the Justice Ministry, where we will again do a baby feed-in to call for change on this issue. So we'll keep going. We uh, intend to go to Bronzefield in Surrey, where the other loss of a baby occurred, and that will happen in September, where we'll do a kids' toy noise demo with kids of all ages. And we really just want to see this movement grow nationally as it's beginning to do, so that new parents across the country can say to the government, this is something that no... New mother should be put through and it has to
2: end now. Wamel well, Evans, co founder No Birth Behind Bars, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Well, what did you think? It's, it's an incredibly frustrating issue. I remember last time we talked about prisons, just thinking it's mad in that it's one of those things like drug policy where politicians have all this evidence to say it's just not working and we've got to do it a different way. But it's, I think you've described it as third rail, these, these issues as third rail before, that nobody wants to touch them. That being said, talking to Kate, it seems that maybe even the public aren't where you think they are on this, that it doesn't have to be one of those policies that takes a long time for the public to catch up. And hearing these stories, especially hearing that, that word voiceless, Paula talked about. And then some of the descriptions of what life for pregnant women or women giving birth in the prison system from male, it's inhuman. And I just don't believe that the, the public would be so punitive in the face of all of that. So maybe, maybe it does require some kind of leap of faith from government or from the political parties.
2: I think it's worth saying that our shadow prisons minister, Ellie Reeves, is a, is a very good person. And, and I talked to her about this and she said that, that the party's position was against the 500 new places for women, which we heard about. But I certainly think listening to the wider debate, it's just such a, I think it is a very compelling case uh, that is being made. And, uh, I think it is very, very important to
3: to cover it. And I think a lot of it seems to me to be common sense, don't you think? Yeah. And I was just thinking then how clever that new Labour messaging of tough on crime, tough on causes of crime was, because it, it gave you cover to focus on the latter. As Kate was saying, really, the focus needs to be on what happens before somebody ever puts foot inside a prison. And then, of course, the other aspect of this is even though women are of a very small, um, less than five percent part of the prison population, the, the reasons that they are there can often just seem so trivial and their needs and the way it can affect families due to women so often being primary carers is, is catastrophic surely no matter how hardline you are on punishment nobody is thinking that the the child of a woman in prison should be punished as well and and that's just what's happening time and time again
1: you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd
2: if you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's show or ideas for future shows, please do get in touch with us. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. This comes from Gabrielle Shamash. Ed and Jeff, I arrived in the UK on June the 6th from New Jersey, and while waiting in the customs line, noticed a Coldwater Swimming Photography Exhibition advertisement. Wow. After listening to Ed and a certain father-daughter duo, last name Campbell, bang on about it for months I booked myself a spot at the Parliament Hill Lido talking to people online New Jersey residents currently living in Southwark aren't a big demographic I think she means when she says online she means in line I think aren't a big demographic right. that's an American way of saying on the it isn't it she's in the queue in the oh, queue not, yes, not online yes, as yes. on the internet. yes yeah. okay uh aren't yes. a big demographic for North London Lido swimmers. so I did feel quite pleased with myself Uh, For ditching more touristy bits of the city for a proper London experience. I popped myself into the slow lane. I managed about six laps before my towel was calling. But I'm planning to return next weekend. It's the sort of thing I would never have done had Ed not been mentioning it for months on end. But I'm a new fan. Looking forward to the live show. You know, honestly,
3: who says I'm not changing people's lives, Jeff? (laughs) I'm looking forward to meeting Gabrielle at the live show. She's uh, become one of our most valued contributors of late absolutely she also says uh, i know i said i wouldn't advertise other podcast, but have you considered a charity swim off against the rest is politics i don't think that's a good idea me neither i think i i would hamper our team too severely. Yeah. This is from Ken Liu who says on the subject of swimwear, I highly recommend the Speedo jammers. I too have reached that age where no one wants to imagine what is best left to the imagination and you will swim faster. Also, as someone who is very short sighted, um the OptiPure goggles come as prescription lenses. See this is what I need. I really struggle to see anything. When I haven't got my glasses on, uh, he also says. Now this is an this is an idea. Never mind a charity swim off. He says, "How about a reasons to be cheerful pool party?" Maybe I'm into the idea of a, a cheerful pool party. Okay, we could get a DJ blasting out Sam Fender and Taylor Swift and the reasons to be cheerful theme music. It feels like okay. I never saw this movie. Was it called The Breakfast Club? Emilio Estevez. Yes. I loved that
2: film. Is that, is it, was the, did they have pool parties? Do you think?
3: No, I think you think you're way off. But I think you are getting at a certain type of sort of affluent suburban teenage. Why would they not have had pool parties? Because they were in to help. The premise of the film is that they're in Saturday detention in a school, and it's mindlessly boring. Oh,
2: right. Okay. Well, I've never saw the film, but it's the sort of right thought, isn't it?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I see where you're going. You're thinking of those American teen films. You was
2: the Emilio Estevez character. Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah, so yeah. Definitely that one, and not the uh, not the nerdy one. Yeah, I'd be the nerdy one. Uh, right, this is from
2: Samantha Law.
3: We fought the law. Uh,
2: Australian Election Day festivals. I've been meaning to write for a little while, but the recent Democracy Sausage conversation is what really got me. As an Australian listener, I can confirm the Democracy Sausage as the main draw card to come down to the voting booths, aside from mandatory voting. A handy website, sausage.org, points voters in the direction of the best sausage. in their electorate there's usually a bake sale with politically punny names like Engadine macaroons jackie lamington's or the alba cheesy you need to be an expert on australian politics i think to quite get the full import of all that to be honest election day is a bit like a community festival and then she goes on to talk about the health gap a podcast that we had with michael marmot and she says she works in kyrgyzstan in international development as a public health specialist I'd be interested in an episode about aid and international development policy in the UK. I mean, what what a impressive sort of,
3: is it polyglot? When are you a polyglot and when are you a polymath? Oh, I don't know who. Polyglot means an expert on lots of things, yeah? And does a polymath mean an enthusiast in lots of things? I don't know. Mm. Anyway, I really like that idea as well. We've not um, touched international development so much, have we? Yeah, good idea, eh? Yeah. And this is, uh, just quickly, Sue Cooper Um, emails to say that um, she's also going to Glastonbury. She's looking forward to your set uh, and hopes that you will be hanging out and not just helicoptering in and out. Ed, you're not not deploying the Edcopter, are you? Well, I did think about whether there was an electric Edcopter, but
2: (laughs) no, she'll be going in my electric car.
3: She says, my friend's Diane Rosa and I will be there as part of WaterAid's volunteer loo cleaning crew. Oh, my goodness, you, uh, you have my um, sympathy and admiration. Oh, but she says, and despite what you may have heard about the notorious Glastonbury Long Drops, we can assure you of some wonderfully clean facilities. Does that put your mind at ease? Makes me want to camp, definitely.
1: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
3: Well, ho, ho! we're in the outro. We are. You're off to Glastonbury. I've not told you about what I'm up to. What are you up to? I'm taking Gene to see Elton John on Saturday night. Wow. I'm, I'm feeling a bit nervous about it, I'll be honest. Because? Because he, he basically likes I'm Still Standing in Crocodile Rock. I've checked the set list and I think he might have to wait 17 or 18 songs before he gets to that one. And I'm not sure about Where his, is it pa- Hyde Park. Wow. Yeah. But then, perhaps even more excitingly than that, I'm going to the ABBA Voyage Show. Very exciting. I, even I want to quite want
2: to go to the ABBA Voyage Show, you know. D- don't buy me tickets for the ABBA Voyage Show. But, but I re- I, even I kind of thinking, oh, it might be quite fun. But do you have to sort of get up and like wave your arms around, do you think?
3: I don't think it's compulsory. I don't think they have guards patrolling. <laughs>
2: No, but there's like going to be rows of people all dancing and singing, and then like me sitting there like a sort of lemon.
3: But isn't that like any concert? That's why I don't go to concerts. (laughs) Never sort of know quite know what to do with my arm. Should we thank our guests? We should. Thanks to Kate Paradine, Paula Harriet, and Mel Evans. Emma Corsham is our audio producer Rachel Barmer is our content producer thanks to Rachel for sorting out the guests and doing all the research for this episode backed up by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish Gail Lofthouse is our announcer Ed Seed composed the music James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole He's off to sing Waterloo He's off to a grim Portaloo And these would be Reasons to be Cheerful